Hello, good evening and welcome to The Game is About Glory. My name is Stefan and this is episode four of season two. We're in full pre-season training mode, uh, even though we didn't have a few weeks off at some repulsively expensive beach resort. Uh, and Nuno's got us full of Esperito for the coming season. Can I have a round of applause for that line, please? It was uh, crafted. Thank you very much. Crafted over a, a, a nice cup of tea and a good slice of toast. Joining me tonight are Ricky, Gareth and Milo. Good evening, chaps. How are you? Nice, Steph. Evening, Steph. Very good. And before we get into the main topic of tonight's sliding doors, and no, it won't be a patio designer's seminar. That's my second joke of the night, lads. Applaud as you wish. Let's continue enjoying the return of our rebuilding and revitalising of Tottenham Hotspur Football Club with a look at the week just passed in Tottenham territory. There's been a signing, Pierluigi Gallini, and the departure of Toby Alderweireld is close, if not complete, as we record. There's been the sunny contract extension announcement. There's been a little bit about a new away kit. Uh, there's been more noise and waffle on the Harry Kane front. There's been uh, some movement on the Eric Lamella side of things. And there was the Colchester run out last Wednesday, which saw the mighty Tottenham Hotspur smash the bastards 3-0. Milo, stop crying in the corner. I know that your beloved Eric is, is making his way and I, we will, you know, We'll be there to comfort you. We promise that we'll give an entire month's worth of shows over to the glory of Eric Lamella in the coming in the coming weeks. We we, we promise. But let's start with that Colchester caning. And I'm going to throw it open to whoever wants to comment. 3-0. It's a good start. And I see that uh, Lamella's number one fan has his, his hand in the air. Uh, fire away. He didn't, he didn't play against Colchester, did he? What, what are you speaking up for? <laughs> That's nice. It was a good performance, this one. Uh, I thought, uh, particularly in the first half, I thought we played well. It was uh, 4-3-3, stroke 4-2-3-1 again. So Dyer starting deep in midfield and then pushing up into attack as as we got forwards. Um, I thought uh, Pascotzi and Skip had really good games. Uh, Pascotzi um, got forward quite a lot, which is surprising for a centre-back playing at right-back. But uh, I thought he had a good game, got forward lots. I thought Bergwin and Delhi were much improved on the performance uh they had the week before as they played really well I thought Whiteman had an excellent game as well and that's quite key it's evidently Hart's been told that um, he's fighting it out with Whiteman for, th- um, for third choice keeper and um, is being encouraged to, to, to look for another club so I th- Whiteman having a good game is is good I think he made a couple of really good saves everyone came off apart from Whiteman so um, again we had another game where pretty much everyone was changed and then uh, with the subs coming on, I thought Niall John had a very, very good game again. So second one on the trot where he's looked very good. Uh, Scarlett was lively, had a well-taken shot that was uh, rightly disallowed for offside, but he, it was a really instinctive first-time shot, which was really good. And um, yeah, MK, MK Don's up next on, on Wednesday night, which is being shown on Spurs TV again. So yeah, so far so good. Let me ask you a quick question here. Uh, you know, we've got... Uh obviously John and Scarlett are making a big fuss and, and, and quite rightly so uh, the pre-seasons they've done quite well but mm. uh, guys do we see any breakout from either of them in the way that when we had Amos and Skip in the US a few seasons ago you know we did see Skip ascend into you know fairly you know fairly important role in the squad under Potch fairly quickly Amos obviously suffered terrible injuries and uh, was I think a very unfortunate loss because I thought he was a great mm. player um, but do we see a similar breakout this season from either of those players? I think this year I mean, it could be quite lucky for them because the Conference mm. League is definitely going to be a competition that we can give them a spin in. And I think we said before in some other pods, maybe in those kind mm. of 20 and above squad numbers, we can fill them up with those guys. I mean, why not? Why not? Great. Yeah, sounds good. 
we're talking sliding doors later on in the episode, but it could be real sliding doors moments for any of those players. I mean, who knows what injuries might occur in more more senior players within the squad that maybe just give them that opportunity. It's like Luke Amos, who um, very unfortunately suffered a really bad injury, having had a really good pre-season mm. where perhaps he may have starred uh, that particular season. Ryan Mason had a really good pre-season when, when Potch first took over and that was gave him the platform to start establishing himself in the first team. So look, the best all they can do is, is make themselves known to the manager and who knows what will happen. I think probably the key thing there is, um, is outgoing players. So, I mean, particularly now, John's uh, chances are going to be limited if you still got Winks and Sissoko and other players like that knocking around. So, I mean, there's meant to be interest in Sissoko. I think Napoli are interested in him. Everton are meant to be interested in Winks. But I, th- I think, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the, the squad build, rebuild is really dependent on moving players out, and particularly for the young players. If you've got players knocking around on 100k a week like Sissoko is. No, John's chances are going to be limited. Yeah, it's great. And again, Gareth, I'm glad that we've both managed to touch on Luke Amos because what a loss. I mean, I actually thought he looked superb mm. uh, in those games, really did, and just really sad. And you're right, it's sliding doors a moment, and we'll be getting to more of those later. But I am going to go to you to recap the Sunny extension and the Toby news, if you would, for us. So bring us up to speed on that. So Sunny has signed his four year extension deal for us we think it's probably been in the in the offing for about nine months and there was I think there were perhaps various reasons why he and the club chose not to announce it sooner but look it's a it's a, it's a weight off all of our shoulders I think because the longer it went on with him not signing you just just begin to question what might have been going on but I mean I'm just thinking he must surely will go down as one of the greatest signings in the club's history we got mm-hmm. him for 22 million, a player that I, that's as many of us had heard of, unless we were real students of, of German football in 2015. But to have scored 107 goals for the club in the, what, six years that he's been with us, and, and who knows how many more he'll get in the next four as well. So the question, Mark, and the elephant in the room is that some people have been questioning, well, what's his ambition if he's prepared to stay for Spurs for another four years when he is talked about, maybe in that not world-class bracket, but certainly the next bracket down with the commercial appeal he's, he's got and we were discussing this on the whatsapp group earlier in the week and i wonder whether that albeit i think he probably agreed to sign this deal a long time ago that in other circumstances in other climates perhaps this would be the summer that a real madrid traditionally might have come in for someone like him um where financial limitations that they've got would perhaps prohibit them from from doing him so it seems like it's probably a bit of a perfect storm for everyone that we're in a position where he will happily sign for us and he sees Spurs as being the the best place for him to see out the next four years of his career. In terms of why it wasn't announced, I think it was a condition of the loan we got from the Bank of England to cover COVID losses. We weren't allowed to make any new signings with that, and I think that also covered uh, significant uh, contract extensions. My my understanding is that the um, the extension was agreed some time ago, but couldn't be announced. And I think it's he only he only uh, returned for pre-season at the beginning of this week. So I think it's telling that it was announced a, you know a handful of days after he'd returned um, to the side. Um, in terms of kind of sun, sun going somewhere else, I'm sure that Real Madrid would be quite happy to have him, but I don't think he'd be a starter for them. And I think maybe we're, I mean, he, he obviously looks happy, you know, very happy at the club. London's a great city to live in. And I think maybe we're the biggest club where he's an automatic starter. Well, I mean, I also have to come in for a second and just say, you know, this, 
plays into a problem I have with, with modern life and modern thinking, which is that everyone is always going to want the shiniest, flashiest, most successful, quote-unquote, new toy. And, you know, perhaps Sonny is an evolved individual who understands that the grass is not always greener on the other side and that you go to one of these, quote-unquote, mega clubs. And as you said, Milo, you end up being a bit part player in a mm-hmm. political theatre that's far greater than anything you ever imagined. Maybe he's genuinely happy. I don't think we're going to see a drop-off in his effort or his application mm-hmm. just because he signed a new contract. As a matter of fact, I see a player like Sonny saying, right, these are my shoulders now. They've broadened a little bit because I am getting paid more. I do have security and I'm going to help carry this club somewhere and I'm going to lead the charge. So I think, as a matter of fact, he's going to double down on his ambition. Anyone who talks about lack of ambition relative to this contract, I think he's just falling for the same old trope that, you know, bigger is better, which it just isn't. Can I also add, I think another thing worth pointing no. out is... Oh, I've been shut down <laughs> Sorry, again, mate. So, Sorry, mate. <laughs> I, won't, I was telling you then, this is an important point. Now, I think it's also worth noting that we like potentially played a blinder when Sonny had the whole national service thing hanging, mm. o- hanging over him. I mean, to give him every chance to play in whatever tournaments yeah. he needed to gain exemption, I would say, you know, that's sort of... That's probably paying dividends now. Yeah. You know, and I guess, you know, those actions would resonate greatly with Bubble, Sonny's father. Because if you have seen the Sonny's documentary and you had to put a number on how much how much control do you think Sonny's father has on uh, Sonny's life and career, it's probably in the 90% level. And you, you'd think now that Sonny's probably a fair bit westernised, but, you know, I'd say his dad probably isn't. And he very much carries those Korean values. And those, you know, those could easily be, those Korean values are definitely rooted in loyalty and honour. And I would say that our actions are 100% that. Frankly, values I wish that we all had. But anyway, so carry exactly, on. Exactly, yeah. I mean, and I, and I, he probably saw 100% that in our actions. And he's, um, he's repaying them in kind. He could well be doing that. He brought up that game again. Um, the game where he basically, it was like, I mean, talk about a Hollywood script. That game that Sonny played for his career, if you want to put it as, as, as like that, which it basically was. I mean, how, how much pressure is that? I mean, people mm. talk about Champions League finals and, mm. you know, and all that. That that game, as I could not imagine a game of, of the pressure that he played. It's mm. unimaginable to me. And you're absolutely right. To have the support of the club during that time must have been an intangibly brilliant thing. I think the other thing is, coming, I agree entirely with you, um, Ricky. I think the other thing on that is that he, he moved to Germany when he was very young. And obviously had quite an intense childhood, his dad yeah. <laughs> um, obviously worked him quite hard. Maybe he just likes being settled because it doesn't appear that he actually has been settled at any point in his life really before that. So maybe, yeah. you know, maybe it's just a good place for him to be. Yeah, and I mean, look, if you're if you're being sort of somewhat business cynical about it, you would look as his advisors or as his father, whoever, and say, you're at a club, with yeah, a big club, an international club, best facilities around, you had a huge season last season which was talked about internationally and this is your chance to be that club's talisman especially with what might be happening with our number 10 so I mean in all manner of ways it makes total sense to me and again I I think he's going to double down on his efforts and and be you know he's always going to be sunny he's always going to have a streak here or there where he's maybe overplayed a little bit and not scoring on a run but overall I think he's going to be sensational and it's a great signing and yeah, and on the flip side of that, as Sonny walks in the door with his new contract, we did we have seen uh, Toby departing, and so uh, any 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 thoughts, Gareth, that you want to kick off on that? I think he's wanted to leave for the last three summers, hasn't he? He's he's made noises about going. He's he's our best central defender. Let's not get that wrong. Pound for pound, he's our best central defender that we've got. But it's probably a good moment to to move him on because of his age he's certainly not going to get any better we've seen him on a downwards trajectory in the last what two and a half 
years. I think it's probably best for all parties that he moves on now with our best wishes and and thanks for the, the sort of sterling efforts that he's put in and the and the teams that he's been part of. And it's 120k a week off the wage bill. Yeah, was that um was the photo genuine of him, the one where he had the scarf on and the I believe so bunch of roses. But yeah, I believe so. I say there's probably a good point, Steph, to talk about kind of the other photo that's emerged, which is um, Lamella turning up. I suppose this is the point, and I think that given the fact that you are the uh, the charging force of the uh, Eric Lamella uh, Appreciation Society, I don't think there's anybody better placed to walk us through this, um, I think, probably the right thing to do act. Um, mm-hmm. I know you would term it probably a, a, a tragedy, but bring us through. <sighs> Try if you can. I know this is going to be hard. about the tears? Well, Try. But, although you can edit them out. So, you know, cry if you must. We're here for you, my friend. Well, no, I mean, I think you got me slightly wrong. I would sell everyone. I, you know, <laughs> yeah, I would sell everyone. I, I think it's another one where it's, it's the right time. It's the right time for him to go. I, I love Lamella, but, um, you know, time moves on. I'm not a sentimental. I'm not a sentimental person. I don't really go back and kind of listen to old albums and, and reminisce about old times it's time it's time for him to move on and so anyway tonight he's um there's photos of merch of him turning up at uh, severe um and i think there's also a photo from uh, their stadium where they had a photo of him up in his name so it looks like it's pretty close yeah that would have been a photo that would have been hard to fake if someone mm. faked that photo, which incidentally, obviously you can't see it because you're listening to us, but you've probably seen it. If someone has faked that photo, that is sort of like deep fakery because they've gone backwards in the faking, haven't they, to make it look scrappy. It's it's a yeah, it's a shot of a scoreboard trailering his picture um, as a as a uh, severe player. Yeah, but yeah. on the plus side, yep. it looks like we're getting a very good player coming in the in the opposite direction in Brian um, Gill yep. and. Um, He's in Tokyo at the moment for the Olympics, but presumably we've got we can get some um, some doctors in Japan to do a medical over there. It yep. looks like it's pretty much been agreed. So yep. I think with both Toby going out and uh, with Lamella, we're further down the road of that painful re- rebuild. And some of the players that are coming in look very very exciting. He does look exciting. Brian Gilles Salvatierra. If I've not butchered that pronunciation, if I have, please don't let me know. I. Apparently he's five foot nine, and uh, I've heard comparisons with him to uh, being a sort of a David Silva type player. Uh, it's one of the things I've heard uh, that he could develop into from the various experts. I can say, frankly, I've seen very little of him, uh, so I'm not in any great position to comment. I don't know if any of you have. I saw a little bit of him for um, the Spain under twenty threes in the Olympics earlier today. I thought he, he looked he looked quite good from the bits yeah. I saw. Yeah. yeah, he looks he looks great on YouTube, but um, yeah. I've been burnt by that before. Yeah. yeah, haven't we all? Haven't we all? He's definitely looked good on YouTube. He's got some. Um, he can beat the man. He can drive past players, but not in a kind of you know, not in a kind of bully kind of way. He's just definitely got great technique. I was going to say the one thing that did occur to me in the kind of linking you know the discussion about Sonny just beforehand is that um, it does get you know Sonny is a bit streaky, mm. and at the very least, it gives us an option of a very you know exciting player who can take people on um, from that side of the pitch, which is something that we've um, we've struggled with a little bit. Well, the other thing I could compare him to is. Um, Neto at Wolves for Nuno, basically. Mm, yeah. Someone yeah. that's, you know, a bit younger, a bit under the radar, and then yep. springs into, you know, being an excellent player, great, excellent Premier League player. I think he's going to need six months at least. I hope that we give him the time. Conference League, he needs to, very useful. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also I should share that there was actually great sadness uh, on the part of Ricky earlier this week when confronted with a picture 
of young Brian, Ricky realised that he had sacrificed the exact same hairstyle right. as young Brian right. is wearing these days. Uh, only mere weeks ago, and he's shaking his head now in dismay at the I, thought. I've that he gone could early have. on the cut. I've you've gone early it. on the cut, mate. I'm kind of ho- hoping in the in the way you got a young winger's name on the back of your shirt last season, Steph, that you'll be getting a, a new young wing, winger's haircut on your head this year. Tell you someone else is praying for that, my wife. But uh, anyway, <laughs> she's praying. She's with you. Do you think she'd like you with a, uh, with a Brian Barnett? She'd take the Brian Barnett over this, I'm sure. The, the Jedward, I think, that she tolerates uh, with, 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 with a smile that hides a grimace, I'll tell you that. But anyway, oh, uh, that being said, just to round off, I think, yeah, I think, you know, it's it's been a good week of business. It shows that we're 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 up to something. Uh, it shows that our uh, sporting director is definitely busy, busy, busy. Uh, mm. uh, as we hear, he likes to go for ten, you know, put ten targets out there and go for one. Apparently, there's all sorts of stories that he doesn't sleep and all this stuff. And uh, you know, I think the Guardian and the Athletic have been running various pieces on his and his work rate, if you will, and his first fully productive uh, signing for us in terms of the first signing we've actually seen produced and rubber stamped is uh, Pierluigi Gullini. Great name for a goalkeeper, I think, actually, if I can be blunt. <laughs> so Defendi is your favourite uh, defender we've ever had, isn't it? So <laughs> It would have been great. Defend, Defendi Gullini, it would have been good. Uh, 26 years old. Uh, I have to say he's older than he looks. Um, he looks like a, quite a character. Six foot four, bleached blonde hair in uh, the, the sort of, uh, looked a bit like Gaza meets Eminem to me, actually. Uh, enjoys a bit of swaggy fashion, doesn't he? Does enjoys a bit. Can the real Galini please stand up? Is that what we're going to be saying? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a, and a, you know he's 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 a confirmed Italian rapper uh, who has his own single, rapper Coi Guanti. And once again, for those of us who are critical of my Italian pronunciation, rapper Coi Guanti. I'm sure I've butchered it, but that's fine. Which has over one million YouTube views. I'm going to leave a little gap here just in case Milo wants to clue you in as to how it sounds. <laughs> There you are. Now you can, uh, let's hope the goalkeeping is, uh, well, shall we say, maybe a little stronger. Uh, He went to Man United (laughs) in his mid-teens. Then he went to Villa as a 21-year-old in 2016, where they felt, surprisingly, he was a little lifestyle preoccupied. Uh, It's hard to imagine looking at him and listening to him. Um, He went to Atalanta in 2018. He became a full international, played in the Champions League, fell out with the manager Gasparini, and here he is, a hugely rated talent that is with us uh, on loan. Uh, with an option to buy for 12.9 million quid we are obliged to make that signing if he makes 20 appearances and you know here's the knock on him he comes with a reputation of being a huge presence in goal and a character um, not of the shop stopping caliber of Lloris um, in many ways an opposite of Hugo Lloris it's said Um, and just a couple of quotes that I just think are really really funny uh, from him Uh, of his time at Man United he said there is a kind of military regime with absurd rules he told Gazetta della Sport in 2018. In winter, hats, gloves, knitwear, sleeves and long trousers are forbidden. Also forbidden were tattoos. I presume he means generally and not in winter. And social media profiles. But that experience helped me. I became a man before time. What a wonderful quote. And he also credits Man United with uh, teaching him about rap. There's a whole pod to be 
<laughs> launched off the back of that thought. Uh, and uh, another little fact, he went to a Justin Bieber gig with Jack Grealish, with whom he is mates. Anyone else want to come in? Yeah, I, I, one of the things that I wonder is, is he's, he, as you mentioned, he's very, very different to Larice in that um comes off his line a fair bit. He's not a great shot stopper. And I, I wonder for the defence how much of an issue that will be having keepers who are very, very different in style and whether that might be an issue in terms of them adjusting to him. His stats don't look great, to be honest with you. I mean, he, he's definitely, he definitely looks to be an upgrade on Hart, but I'm not convinced that we've signed our long-term successor to, Lur- to Lurice. But time will tell, and I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, I suppose that's what we're hoping he is, that he's, he's going to be the reserve to take over from Loris when... I mean, Loris has got a year left, so that's the succession plan in mm. there. I mean, just completing on the goalies, I mean, Whiteman's going to be third, but with Whiteman mm. maybe being back up next year, I might be more minded to give Whiteman a loan somewhere. So Because have we got Brad Martin or someone? Brandon Austin. Austin's out on loan, yeah. Yeah, so he could be... Because th- third-place goalies don't really get any game time do they Austin's out on loan until December so he's out on loan um, for the calendar year oh okay Funnily enough, Ali Gold was talking about this on his video last week, and he was saying it's very, very difficult to get loan deals for keepers where they're going to play. Oh, true. So there's not much sense in sending him out on loan to be sit on the bench somewhere else. True. I mentioned earlier on, I thought he looked very good against Colchester. He made a couple of really yeah, good saves. The other thing I was going to say about Galini is that Atalanta are a very, very system-based side. I mean, it might help if there's a central defender in front of him that he's uh, got experience of playing with. So I think sometimes players who play very well, you know, play within a system, it, it isn't always easy for them to um, to kind of lift that up and drop that into another team. What we don't know is, and we're not sure. I mean, we're assuming that he got um, that he got the axe, uh, you know, from Gasparini uh, for attitude. I mean, that's that's the assumption that I'm making. I've no idea. It might have been a tactical thing, or it might have been a performance thing. We don't know. But he certainly didn't. You know, he certainly stopped playing for Atalanta at a certain point. Um, and I mean, yeah. some have said that he was quite unlucky and that he would have gone to the the Euros with, with Italy, but for that, that he certainly had the talent and should have been in that squad. I mean, you know, again, I can only really go with what I hear about him, uh, which is. Never, never the most useful way to make a judgment on a player. So, um, I mean, you'd, you'd guess that if he, I mean, if, if he was on Man United's radar and he was, you know, he got taken to Old Trafford, that they must have, I mean, as a youngster, he must have been seen as being having potential. Mm. But obviously, it didn't work out. I don't know what, when he was at Man United, what the years was, and who the managers was. So. Yeah, he was quite. He was very young. He was there in the. He was there at the uh, in the Pogba era of of, of uh, at the first, uh, not the first Pogba. Sorry, uh, they they were friends as as youth players, weren't they? But again, yeah. I mean that that shows his confidence, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, the other thing you would say about goalkeepers is that they are, as we all well know, for those of us who remember the mighty John Burridge and players like that. I mean, they are a union of their own, and they are absolute eccentrics. They are the drummers of, of 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 football teams and so you know they do sort of mature and, and at, at a different rate and you might have i mean you know in plowing through trying to find out more about him i've left with the overwhelming conclusion that he was a wild child um with a bit of a a, a, a you know what is it, a, a wild hair up his ass, I suppose would be the phrase, and that perhaps that hair's been trimmed at 26 and maybe he's now ready to buckle down and really make good on his potential and his talent. So it might be one of those moments where we've dovetailed with a talent that's ready to, to work and, and really make good mm. of it. So I'm going to be an optimist and say I think he's going to be brilliant based on nothing other than my own optimistic view of, of mankind and goalkeepers. So there we are. Ever the romantic, Steph, ever the romantic. <laughs> ever the romantic, got a new romantic, although the hair is getting there. Uh, right, uh, enough of this uh, 
enough of this. We've just covered the week that was quite exciting to have a busy week like that, isn't it? And mm. it's all quite progressive and it's all quite, you know, onwards and upwards, if you will. It's nice. Mm. Potentially with a really even more exciting week to come. You know, it's, um, yeah. Yeah. it looks like we're going to get a few, a few, a few more incomings it. and, um, yeah, and a slight step up in terms of opposition in, uh, in the preseason friendly midweek. So. Yeah, That's this it. time next it's week all... we should we should, it should start shaping. Yes, of course. The one thing I realise we have not discussed yet: <laughs> the elephant in the room, the elephant the big in H. the room. Yeah, the big H. Well, you said it. Oh, uh, you know, let <laughs> onwards, onwards, my friend, onwards. What do we have to say about the news in the big H elephant? I'll start with the Harry bit. There is a little bit of finance bit, which is not as interesting as it was, but it's probably still good to talk about. But Because the Harry thing and the finance things is slightly related on the basis of how much money we've got and that kind of thing. Mm. But Harry Kane, is he, isn't he? Hmm. Um, well, I'm sure the Sun aren't going to be telling us, certainly not the showbiz department. But um, what we need, I mean, we thought about it, we talked about it in our chat, who fed the story? Was it Levy? Was it um, CK66, a.k.a. Charlie Kane? Or was it just something overheard at Charlie Kane's wedding? I mean, I'd envisage, <laughs> this is a bit, you know, I did envisage that something she, that's Clemmie Moody, I'd better call her by her name, um, heard in the men's speeches and didn't realise that it was just a bit tongue-in-cheek comment. But, um... <laughs> But how do we dissect it, boys? How do we dissect it? I think we discussed this already. I think it, it doesn't really move the story on. I don't think. I think we're still at the we're still at the stage where two things will shift it, which will be Kane kicking up a stink, which I can't really see, or 160 million pound cash, and then there's talks, and that's it. I just don't think it moves it on, really, guys. Yeah. Do you think yep. so? No, I think that's right. I nothing to say. <laughs> no, I, until until there's a serious offer on the table, nothing changes. That's right. No matter what story mm. comes up and springs up, no matter mm. how it's being driven or managed, it's the, it doesn't matter how much the sun print. Levy's not going to sell Kane for a hundred million, is he? No. <laughs> or fifty million plus cast-offs, or whatever the first city offer was. I mean, you know, until there's a serious offer on the table, there's nothing to discuss. Yeah, and I mean, and this is the point, isn't it? You know, everyone's saying, well, you know, you could get 100 million in cash and you could get, like, you know, you get Mares, couldn't you? Get Mares in. Like, you know, you get. A, what? Who says Riyad Mares wants to come to us? Who says that the manager wants Riyad Mares? It's all just like, you know, it's geezers sitting on the couch, like doing high business and high finance when we just, it really is a very binary thing. The player has a value, they need to pay it, and that's it. <laughs> But but also, you know, as, as we're seeing with the stories about financial fair play cropping up with City again, they're not a club that's actually bound by, um, you know, economics the same as everyone else is. You know, they're backed by a country. You know, Coutinho <laughs> went to Barcelona for 150 million. You know, uh, you know, Neymar went to PSG for 197 million. Kane is better than both of those. Yeah, you're saying that in relation to their values. Uh, to, well, no, to I'm saying you know, these, these these are potential, but these are these are potential benchmarks, and yes. you know, with everyone else, you'd say, well, COVID is a factor. Man City, COVID isn't a factor because they're backed by a country. It's a sovereign wealth fund. It's not. It's not the same as everyone else. So we shouldn't be giving them any discounts because of COVID or anything like that. They need to put a serious offer on the table. And 100 million made up of cast-offs isn't a serious offer. Especially cast-offs who don't want to play for us, probably. No, that's right. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, Raheem Sterling was mentioned. And we couldn't afford their wages. 
Right, exactly. Yeah, it's it's the whole thing is becoming a little bit like every other major transfer pantomime of every other season that you can imagine. There's always one player, and uh, I think Kane is that this year. Gareth, bring us to sanity and let's close this off. Yeah, look, I think the conclusion is there's no news here. There's nothing to see here. There's, there's nothing is different um, from that Sun report, which say it wasn't even on the back page. It was on the front page of the newspaper, and it just had no substance to it whatsoever. And as you said, it didn't move the story on whatsoever. I think the next um, point where we may get an indication of whether something is going to happen or it's not quite as straightforward as we're suggesting is uh, it's probably uh, this time next week or next Monday morning that um, he will be returning to training having had his three weeks off from the end of the Euros and possibly if there's going to be a story I think that's the point that we would know there might be something more in it but at the moment say nothing's changed. As you quite rightly say, Harry is going to be coming back to training in a couple of weeks, but you also had a very, uh, you know, prescient observation that you wanted to make sure we got in early there, Gareth, didn't you? So uh, you should uh, fire away with that. Yeah, I just want us to be the first podcast to get this out there. So what is it? This is the 25th of July today. So in what, five weeks time, we'll have played the first three games of the Premier League games of the season and we'll be at the first international break. And I would say with some certainty, so we play Man City at home, Wolves away and Watford at home. It's very, very likely that Kane will look like he's running through treacle because he's got a track record of doing that. So, I mean, looking back at his first three games of, of other seasons for us, uh, last year, Everton at home, Southampton away, Newcastle at home, one goal, didn't play particularly well uh, in those two home games. Uh, the season before that, he scored twice against Villa on the opening day, didn't score in the other two games. Uh, again, looked like he was... Um, he was pushing water up a hill 2018-19 off the back of the last World Cup um, scored twice which was the best return he's had in that period season before that no goals in the first three games season before that no goals in the first three games off the back of a disappointing Euros so I think it's we should expect that no matter what his mental state is or what the state of the contract is there's a very good chance that he will look like he is playing with deep sea divers boots on for the first three games of the year and what people need to be very very careful of is looking to fuel a narrative that's already out there which is that his head's not in it and his head's gone and he's not interested in it physically we know from track record of looking at the last six years it takes him four or five games to get into the flow of a Premier League season and that will be I'm sure no different this year brilliantly put and just before well just to round off things uh you know it is summer we are as we've you know been talking about in the midst of transfer dealings and wheelings and schmealings and whatever else and uh, I know that you know finance is a key question and much like you know I was saying earlier that like you know there's geezers on the couch say well we'll just spend this and do that and shuffle him over here and bring him in and then that's all sorted isn't it well Ricky why don't you tell us exactly what we can and cannot sort as per your uh, calculations and your uh, well it certainly looks like we're throwing the money around doesn't it or we've got money to spend so it's come from somewhere um so there's an overview of what's happened like the last couple of months well in late may we secured 250 million of new lending from existing investors who had placed funds with us before and without wanting to bore you with too many details in a nutshell we asked and they said yes um that 250 million was at 2.8 interest which is 7 million a year that's what that's costing us and part of it was to repay a short date loan of bank of america so all our borrowing is long dated between 25 and 30 years so maturing in 2000 2045 or 2051 when we're all very much older um so we probably have circa 900 million debt and at 2.8 percent 
Um, some tranches of that might be at slightly less rates. It costs us approximately 25 million a year in interest to service that debt. Uh, we don't have to make any capital repayments. That isn't necessary or indeed financially prudent to do that at the moment. Inflation can inflate some of that away. And even if we get to the end of those arrangements, you're meant to pay the lump sum. But quite often, the financial institution you got it from, they'll kick that down the road further. I mean, at the end of the day, if they're lending you money and you're a great payer, They'll just keep extending that date because if you paid them the money back, they'll just have to find someone else to lend that to who might not be as great as you. So we're great. You know, we pay our money. We pay our interest. We're a good we're a good person to lend to. But then more more a kind of micro situation. It was reported we'd ro- we'd rolled over the Bank of England loan, the 175, until the end of the scheme in March 2022. My thinking was it would have given us more flexibility and a cash pile to play with, especially as the Bank of England loan interest rate was next to nothing at half percent. To keep, we'd keep that roll, we'd keep that loan rolling along with the new lending, so we'd have a lot more flexibility. But I can see from digging around in the um, publicly available Bank of England X file, X Excel file. Uh, that we did indeed pay it off in early June. So I was looking at all this just to gauge the bank, what kind of clout we've got in the transfer market. So if we, the other estimates is we've lost circa 200 million in mm-hmm. income and repaid the 175. So that effectively leaves us with just 50 million from the two loans, totaling 425, the Bank of England for 175 and the institutional lending of 250. I would say that the loss of income can loss of income can be discounted by savings and operational costs, e.g. we're not opening the stadium and operating it, etc. So, we, you know, we haven't got the cost of running that. How much all that adds up to, though, I'm not really that sure. So what I'm saying is it looks like we might not have much of those two figures left, £50 million, and it certainly looks like we're, we're, we're cracking away. At, so in other words, if we did have £50 million, are we going to net out at that after all our transfer dealings that we're thinking of doing? Two points we can discuss. It, it does make you, I mean, one, one is it does make you wonder without the new lending what course of action we would have taken if the government had knocked on the door wanting their £175 million back. Because where would you have got that money from, Uncle Joe? And it's perhaps what you, Steph, alluded to two, three months ago, that we're we're in a bit of a squeeze financially. And or, I'm not talking about your bail shirt there. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the other point is it does reflect well on Levy that we're able to operate in this way. We're seen as a safe bet. Yeah. I know fans would say, great, we've won the best interest rate cup. You know, they would say those kind of things. But look around Europe and you'll see plenty of other football clubs pretty much crippled after this kind yeah. of thing. So we have to be kind of quite thankful for that. But on the transfer front, how much have we got? Because if we haven't got a lot, obviously other people would then start putting two and two together and think, is it the cane money that we're spending? You see what I'm I, saying? See, I don't think we are. So if we look at kind of outgoings so far, I mean, Obviously, the players going out are on big wages on the whole. Yeah, I think we're up to about, if Lamella's off as well, Toby's off, I think we've saved about 600k a week so far. But the players coming in, obviously, Galini is on loan, so nothing. Yeah. Small small loan fee, I suppose, maybe. Gil is, yeah, possibly, um, 20-odd million plus Lamella. Romero yeah. appears to be around the 40 million mark. Tomoyasu hmm. appears to be in the teens somewhere, 15 to 20 million somewhere. So we're looking, so say we're talking about 80 million there. Hmm. In terms of players going out, Foyth has gone. That was around 15, wasn't it? Um, Toby's gone for a similar fee, so I think, say, 13. We waved, we waved on Edwards, didn't we? Because we just restructured that money, I think. That's so, right. So we've taken, yeah. we've, we've rolled Keep over the, that's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, even with those two, effectively, that's taken down what we've spent so far this summer to 50 million, and that's without other, uh, other mm-hmm. outgoings. Yeah. 
I, you know, I, I think there seems to be quite a lot of interest in Sanchez and Sevilla are interested in him, aren't they? Um, Sissoko is of interest in a couple of clubs in in, um, in Italy. Sissori is the other one, isn't he, that might generate 10 million plus. Yeah, well, there's I suppose Sissoko, Winks, Aurier, yeah, there's all potential. And you don't need to directly replace a lot of those, do you? No. I think we've said that before, that some of them don't really hurt the squad too much. No. I and mean, the, the interesting one on Aurier, so Aurier looked like it was a done deal to PSG, but the, the stories I've read recently suggest that PSG don't want him back because of the way he behaved last time he was there. Mm. Um, there were stories today on Twitter linking him with a move to PSV, but I don't know with how much substance there was to that. Yeah. Just I'd say I'd speculate that Poch probably wouldn't want Aurier back anyway. I don't think he's... Yeah. I think he felt a bit burned by him. What this is all telling me, and, you know, I'm not a financial person, so I find it fascinating to hear about the loans and the restructures and so on and so forth. It, it, it's, it's really interesting to me. But to a non-financial person, what I am getting from this summer is that, again, we do need – whatever mistakes Daniel Levy's made, and Lord knows he's made a, he's made some, and we know it, but we have a sporting director – who's actually doing his job and so far seems to be being allowed to do it. And that is the overriding thing that I am seeing right now. Of course, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating. We'll see in six months' time where we're at. But that's what I'm getting from this. I, th I think actually the key thing here around Levy is that um, the reason we're able to get such cheap loans from the, you know, from the States is because our finances are sound. If our wage bill was out of control, if we were, if we were massively right. in debt from spending on transfers, we wouldn't be able to get these kind of terms. It's, you know, that's why we can borrow money so cheap. Mm. And, you know, what you were talking there, um, Ricky, about the kind of the repayment on those, those, on the interest on those loans, give or take, that's the kind of sums we'd be expecting from stadium sponsorship per year. Exactly. So, you know, if we can get a, a twenty million pound a year stadium sponsorship, which I think are the kind of figures that have been talked about, and then you know, you may, our um, we're about to get a training kit sponsor, aren't we? Hmm. You know, effectively, you know that that will more than cover this. It's not a burden at all, and it's been locked in now a very long term. And the thing is, people do moan about the size of the debt sometimes, but we did get a, a fucking good stadium for it. I mean, some other <laughs> clubs, you know, what I mean, we've got something really massively tangible there. Some other clubs just run yeah. up debts with wages and transfers that go wrong if you look at barcelona and people quite often co compare us to barcelona where barcelona are you know massively indebted but that's been on transfers and and mm. you know, servicing wages and all the rest of it they're in a very very different situation to us and exactly what chelsea owe to abramovich is almost exactly the same amount and that was all just players and I mean, oh, yeah. we'll be getting into some Abramovich talk a little later, I can oh, assure you. I mean, the final thing on transfers is with repayments is it depends how we structure those deals as well. But what mm. I would say is if we've got two quite expensive windows previously, didn't we? You know what I mean? With, Poch mm -hmm. with Poch's last summer and with Mourinho's first window, we spent quite a lot of money considering we were also going in into the pandemic. And we'll have stage payments to make with those transfers. And the other thing to remember is, on the risk-averse front, is we're not out of this yet. I mean, Levy still doesn't really know yeah. if the income is coming in from the stadium next year. So it no. is a bit still... So for him to be a bit bullish in the market is actually a bit of a turnaround for him. Even if we ain't spending megabucks... He's still probably, I mean, admittedly, he might be slightly trumped by thinking the market's reasonably in his favour for buying. So maybe yeah. that's encouraged him. But um, It's definitely a buyer's market, isn't it? So yeah. if you've got the money there. So I think one of the things on the Romero deal that I've seen is that Atalanta are meant to be happy to um, to have it staged, to, to spread the payments on it, which mm. will suit us. Yeah. Yeah. If, again, if it's, not, if it's not a huge amount up front, 
and you know, similar to Gallini, you know, we've pushed that that down the road. Um, that yeah. that may well suit us. And I think you know, again, uh, you know, we should recognise that for all the stick Levy gets, he's obviously you know committed to the director of football. He's committed to a director of football that appears to be able to work within his remit which is uh, roughly the financial remit that you've been putting forward, uh, Ricky. And, and, you know, he again, I repeat, he seems to be allowing him to do his work. I read somewhere that, yeah, I think it might have been from Ali Gold, that Levy has absolutely nothing to do with what's going on negotiation-wise, other than obviously being the man at the, at the end of the phone line that says, yep, yeah, OK, I'll sign that check. But he's not involved. And I think that, you know, that's got to be very encouraging uh, news for us going forward. Whether you mm. agree with what's going on or not, at least we're moving forward with a cohesive and uh, coherent uh you know drive in the in in the management and the upper management which i think sadly is what nobbled us um you know in the latter years of parch and i think we all know that so you know i think in an ideal world you would just give the director of football his budget for wages and players and then he can work he might and in an even more ideal world you wouldn't even phone levy you'll think well i'm within my remit here i can just call make the shots here it looks to me judging by what you've been saying, that that's roughly what's happening. But we're not spending big money. No. It's not. It looks like that cosmetically. We're signing good players, but it's not crazy money, is it? Right, but that's yeah. what I'm saying, is that, like, obviously, in finding Paratici, who is someone that I sort of was a little bit suspicious of, I, I, I will admit, but it seems like, regardless of what one might or might not think of Paratici, and by the way, I think he seems to be doing a fine job, Levy has got that bit of the equation right, where he's found someone who can work with him. Uh, and that is always the most vital part with Daniel Levy, is that you have to be able to sort of, the less tinkering Daniel does with your world, the better you're going to be able to do your job. And I mean, that's a, that's, hmm. that's, that's a truism. It's a bit early though, isn't it, to be judging that kind of thing. I think, you know... As we said earlier, you can judge it in six months' time. I think there's two things, isn't there? There's firstly, at the end of the transfer window, how have we done then? Have we moved on the players we wanted to move on? Have we, right. um, you know, is the, is the squad, does the squad look balanced? Right. But so far, so good, the noises are good. No, I agree, I agree entirely with that. And then, you know, how do those players bed in? And then also, a year or so down the line, are they getting on? Yeah, exactly. So far, so good, though, is what we would say. And yep. actually, in fairness, um, we've probably short, you know, shortchanged you a little bit tonight uh, or maybe given you more value for your pod money, uh, which I hope you've been sending to us in Bitcoin to the various social media addresses <laughs> we have, um, because we've given you a whole extra segment that we never talked about, the financial discussion at Tottenham Hotspur Football Club 2021, which I think has uh, been very, very, it's been very helpful for me and very useful to hear. So thanks for that, Ricky. It's really good. Right. Good to bring that in. But before we move on, there is one other thing that happened this week. <laughs> we launched an away shirt. And who? Crikey Carumba, did it kick up a fuss? Unrepeatable was the marketing <laughs> slogan, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, it is divisive. It is um, divisive. I can think of no other word. And rather than waxing lyrical about the design, I want each of you to describe the new away shirt in one to three words. One word being preferable, but I'll give you three. Gareth, you get to start. Game's gone. <laughs> Ricky. Uh, the Sound Shaft, 1989. The Sound Shaft, 19... Mm. Okay, that's three words. Okay, very good. Yep, okay. I have to count that out. Milo. Intergalactic. And me, purchased. <laughs> oh, there we go. That's all you're going to hear from us on it, other than... Uh, can we talk about the sound shaft, Ricky? Yeah, go on. It was great, wasn't it? It was great. That was, <laughs> was kind really of, that, That's the kind of things I was seeing, that, that shirt. What a great club. 
Yeah, we talk about the sound shaft, and uh, I'm sure that you know, Ricky, that's probably left you with a with a whole bunch of sliding doors moments in your life. But uh, sliding doors moments in football terms are always a lot of fun because they're they're entertaining moments that football fans can waffle on about in bars and coffee shops and living rooms and wherever. You just sit there and you're like, "Whoa, what if this had happened and not that?" and so on and so forth. And at Spurs, we've seen more than a few. I mean, I will argue, for example, that not signing Mane and Wijnaldum. Uh, was a sliding doors moment as it gave Liverpool a vital edge over us. Uh, Milo had raised the time and that titan of shit and roguery Robert Maxwell looked like he was going to buy our football club. Heavens forbid the cavalcade of ugliness that could have uh, befallen us. Uh, Gareth was talking about Sugar ultimately prevailing over Terry Venables. Uh, you know, that could have saved us from being shut down or cost us winning the title. You know, some might even argue that when England sacked Capello, that was a sliding doors moment in terms of Harry Redknapp taking his eye off the ball. Uh, so we've decided to focus on four sliding doors moments that we feel uh, will fulfill the criteria of said moment. What you should know is we're not going to give you a breakdown necessarily of the moment statistically in all its glory. We're going to speculate on what might have happened next had the sliding doors moment not happened. If you follow us, um, you soon will, because you're going to hear flights of fantasy, the likes of which... Uh, that J.K. Rowling would uh, would not be able to conceive. Ricky, why don't you kick us off with your sliding doors moment in Tottenham history? Um, well, we're starting off with Louis Van Gaal. Hal? Gaal? Come on, Steph, help me out with the pronunciation. Come on, you got to get your Dutch accent proper. Louis Van Gaal. Louis Van Gaal. Louis Van Gaal. Sure, sure. Like sure. I'm yeah. going to get I'm going to get slaughtered now by everybody again. So <laughs> anyway, this is the first, this sliding doors moment. Uh, spoiler alert is actually one that worked in our favour. Um, so let's talk about Louis. Um, not Louis Sahar of Nelson Nelson and Sahar fame, which is a sliding door moment in itself. But what we're going to do right here is go back. Yes, not to 1989. Um, let's transport you to Was December that, 13th. Did you just do an American accent? What? What we're going to do right here is go back. Anyway, let's transport you to December 2013. Um, the Parsi Parsi Sideways Never Get Us Anywhere ball of ABB had sent us all numb and a run of bad results had finally committed his um, PowerPoint presentation to the bl- blue screen of death. So bye bye ABB. Enter Captain Timothy Sherwood. Um, I did have other names for him, but anyway, we'll sit with that one. Uh, to steer the ship until a new man could be recruited. Because, so, Tim, you weren't going to be there any longer than six months, so I can tell you that now. Um, top of the list was LVG, Louis van Gaal, an elite and successful manager of teams from Holland, Spain and Germany. But I can, after a little bit of research, let Louis just pick up the story himself. This is setting the scene. It definitely was a possibility to go to Tottenham, he said. Daniel, our own Don Levy, flew into Holland with a private jet and came to my house where we spoke for several hours. He even stayed to watch the Southampton Spurs match that afternoon, sitting with the boys, a few beers, which Spurs won 3-2, coming back from 2-0 down. He asked for my thoughts about that game, so what? Uh, so that was the kind that was a kind of test as well, trying to like pick his brains about the team. And then things got interesting as the press and TV cameras had got wind and they were camped up outside Louis's house. Louis then recalls calling his neighbour and bundling Levy into the back of his neighbour's car and sneaking away as Louis kept the press distracted. Now on the next bit we're familiar with, Van Gaal recalls, it took a long time for Spurs to make a firm offer. And United approached me in the meantime. They acted far quicker. And and I also liked the idea of going there to coach the number one club in England, just like I had done before in Holland, Spain and Germany. If Spurs had come with a concrete offer earlier, I'd have signed for them. Spurs were actually a club I loved when I was younger and I was a big fan of Jimmy Greaves. I told Levy that as well. But he blew his chance for waiting so long. So 
That's right, folks, Levy was dithering again. LBG duly went on to replace the hapless David Moyes, and of course, the irony is, as Levy was jetting off to court in one of the Europe, Europe's most decorated managers, if you cast your minds back to that Southampton game, our very next manager was already sitting in the dugouts of White Hart Lane that afternoon. So, how would have things gone if Levy had not got his skate? No, had got his skates on. My thoughts are. I'm seeing something akin to what we saw with Jose, basically. I just think it was another one of those. True, we had we had like a younger, moldable team that Van Gaal was preferred. I mean, he even in, he even indicated that that was a problem with um, when he went to United, that they were an ageing team. And he has a good record developing players, but I think it's true. He has got some of um, he's got some of Jose's unlikable traits as well. He's a bit angry, he's a bit forthright, he's a bit divisive, and he just goes he goes a little bit sort of crazy when things go wrong. Uh, but maybe, maybe he's just—I don't know—maybe he's just passionate, and I'm doing a disservice. But I can't, but I can't see it being—I can't see it really lasting for more than two years if he was there with us. I think we'd, we, you know, we'd all start off being blinded by the elite manager thing, uh, willing to, you know, willing to join sort of the underachievers Tottenham team. And he's an organizer, a tactician, and a bit like Josie had the medals to show for it. But I think that's all sounding a tad, a tad familiar. Would you say, guys, with that, how it worked yeah. out? I, I can't see him and Levy getting on for very long. Two years, as I say. Yeah. Maximum. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been a bad fit, wouldn't it? Can't see it. Can't see it. Everything worked out. I think he's a bit better than Jose, but he's still, I just don't think, he's still got those other traits. You see, I can't get over those other traits. I think he can work with young players, but. I'm completely biased. I always thought he was, intellectually speaking, a knob, and I don't <laughs> trust a man who looks like him. He has no nose whatsoever, and he just <laughs> looks weird, and I can't trust him. Uh, between the nose and that weird quiff, which, again, I know I shouldn't be talking about hair, but good Lord, it, it just, I mean, the whole thing was a freak show. I, sorry, I can't, I know it's, I know it's not intellectual or in any way uh, intelligent, but I, I just, I don't, I never trusted him, I never liked him, and I was delighted that we swerved it. What a great sliding doors moment that we avoided. Yeah, I mean, this is a fo- football pod with occasional references to hair rather than a hair pod with occasional references <laughs> to football. And... Well, I'm throwing, his, I'm throwing his generally annoying and quite slappable face in there as well, if I may. I don't know why. He just annoyed me. I mean, he annoyed me. I never particularly no, enjoyed his football well, teams really. anyway. I never really enjoyed his football teams. So I always thought, good Lord. I mean, you know, talk about a bloviator. I mean, he loved himself. Oh, dear. I mean, he in that sense, arrogant. yes. Oh. I think he was another bloke who was probably 10 years beyond his his peak years as a football manager i would agree with that i would agree with that very good all right well thanks ricky i was just gonna say so maybe it's like what we moan at levy you know not getting his skates on actually done us a result in that case so you know it does work sometimes and maybe bodes well for this summer because actually most of our best managerial appointments are ones where he hasn't actually uh been able to plan it yeah, he's just falling into someone. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Uh, it's a good lead off, and we're in. We're we're, we're happy that uh, it didn't happen. But Milo, why don't okay. you talk to us about the sli- a sliding doors moment? That I mean, it's just endless, really, when you think about where you could go with this. And I'm interested to see where you do go. Uh, the players were on going on the pitch, but you'll bring us into that. I'm, I'm taking I'm taking this even further out than our new second strip. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <Wow. laughs> Bezos so, penis rocket status, are we? Is that where we're going? Yeah, <laughs> so 2005, 2006, the culmination of the uh, season, it's Lasagna Gate. We were 90 minutes away from pipping out Arsenal for fourth place for the first time for, oh, where were we? Um, since 1995, so 11 years at that point. And we needed to match their result to finish above them. But the night before, 
the team came down with a vomiting bug. And around 1am, 1 1 um, we were starting to fall ill with uh, so reports suggesting 10 players were struggling with symptoms of food poisoning. Uh, but Yo insisted, Martin Yo insisted it was more. He said, I could sum up the players who were not really sick. There was Paul Robinson, Stephen Kelly, Anthony Gardner and Jermaine Defoe. The rest were sick. So the following day, we were scratching around to try and find 11 players that we could put out on the pitch. Premier League, so initially we asked if we could push the game back 24 hours. They refused that. Then we asked if we could play the game at 7pm. They said they refused that. I think originally, I think then they then agreed to push it back two hours, so 5pm kickoff. Uh, but we didn't think that would make any difference, so we, we carried on with uh, 3pm kickoff as uh, originally scheduled. Turns out it wasn't food poisoning. So Tower Hamlets took food samples and uh, they they all turned up negative. So We were just shitting ourselves, were we? No, well, <laughs> it's meant to be viral, so you know, uh, norovirus, something, something similar to that. So originally I was going to suggest we stayed in a different hotel and that that would be our sliding doors moment. But I think it's probably that we don't actually meet up and stay in a hotel the day before the game. But players stay at home and make their own way to the ground. It was in London. That doesn't really, you know wouldn't have made a huge difference so so the sliding doors uh, moment i've got for this is that we don't stay in a hotel at all the players stay at home therefore they don't infect each other and we don't uh, we're not all uh, falling over each other the result of that is that um we win the game and finish above arsenal for the first time since 1995 so we ended up having to wait another 11 years to do that the alternative history at that having happened so arsenal finished fifth and then they lose a week the champions league final a week later to barcelona Henri, Fabregas and Van Persie hand in transfer requests. Henri and Fabregas joining Barcelona that summer and Van Persie joining uh, Manchester United. Spurs in the Champions League qualifying rounds, we comfortably beat Dynamo Zagreb. And then we win our group ahead of Porto, Seska Moscow and, uh, and Hamburg. We beat PSV Eindhoven in the round 16, but then we get knocked out by, uh, by uh, Liverpool in the quarterfinals. Only you could have us knocked out of the Champions League in a Yeah, fantasy. that's right. This is, this, is, this is my dream scenario. I've got us losing. I'm, I'm fully coined. <laughs> <laughs> the, the round after that was Chelsea, Steph. So, so I, was, I was doing us a favour, I thought, um, of the two. It was the lesser of evils. Martin Yole was rewarded with a new contract. And never having played in the UEFA Cup that season, we never get beaten by one day Ramos' severe, and uh, Levy never gets his head turned. So we never get that dreadful night where Martin Yole was sacked with everyone in the stadium knowing about it rather than him. At the end of the 2006-2007 season, Martin Yole leaves, having secured Champions League football for the second successive season. And a surprise to everyone, Spurs pluck a rookie Pep Guardiola from Barcelona's B team to be their new manager and the next decade of success begins. I like the script other than us getting knocked out of the Champions League. Uh, I like it. I like it. I'll, I'll go with it. Uh, even though I'm not also a huge fan of Pep Guardiola, I, uh, I, I would accept that he would have been a decent manager for us. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't have us winning Champions League in our first season in it, Steph. It was just a bit too fanciful. Well, I suppose. Uh, suppose that's yes, maybe. But uh, I, I will also always counter that I do not believe that you know, I know councils and samples of food, whatever hogwash it was a conspiracy uh scudamore <laughs> stood on the sidelines of david dean mocking us when it comes to when it comes to lasagna gate i'm full q someone went in there with a vial full of of, of of botulistic filth and injected it into our lasagna and i'm absolutely convinced it was a setup but uh yeah nicely rounded up i'll take the alternative history and i do think actually what's interesting i did not know i remember all the time shifts i did not know that we were given the option to play the game two hours two hours later i thought we'd gone for 7 p.m or the next day i can't believe we didn't take the two hours that's absurd 
an extra two hours when you're like trying to get through, a, you know, away at West Ham. Can you imagine how messy that would have been in the stands? Well, nearly as messy as it apparently got on the pitch yeah. when Michael Carrick was throwing up everywhere. So, you know, yes, I agree. It would have been. And I thought that was. The- Carrick came off after an hour, didn't he? Yeah. He did, yeah. But that was the big concern, as I remember, was the policing, uh, was they were going on about that. But regardless, it was a stitch up, and I'm living with that. But uh, nicely put, nice, nice alternative. Anyone else uh, got a chip in on that fateful day? I, when I think that wanting to make this too much of a history lesson, actually the sliding doors moment in that season was when we played West Ham at home in the November and we couldn't defend a free kick on the halfway line in the sixth minute of stoppage time and West Ham equalised. And if we'd got those two more points, it probably wouldn't have mattered what happened on the last day, no matter what state of uh, you know our players were in and, or what level of food poisoning they might have got. Oh, it's disgraceful. I hear that there was a food poisoning uh, episode that day as well. I heard that our defence had uh, had a little bit of food poisoning injected in their half-time oranges by the by the, the Phil, someone at Arsenal had obviously got into our dressing room and in, injected the oranges. Uh, awful. I think it would have been interesting to see what um, what happened with our with then lot down the road if, if they had finished fifth that season. And I mean, they had quite a few players leave. I think that was the summer that Sol Campbell left for Portsmouth, and I think Ashley Cole left for Chelsea that summer as well. So there was quite a lot of changes there anyway. But their star players, say, I mean, maybe same as now, they'd probably take a season out of the Champions League, wouldn't they? But it would have had an impact on signings. You know, does it hasten the decline there? Peter Scudamore stood shoulder to shoulder with David Dean and the two of them were positively beaming as they said to the cameras that they would not be unfortunately able to reschedule the game between West Ham United and Tottenham Hotspur. The final game of the season, the last ever game at Highbury, the first game before they move into the Death Star, come on. I know this is not an episode of Q Conspiracies, but my word, you're going to have to go a long way to convince me that there wasn't a mandate saying Arsenal had to be in the Champions League that following season. I'm buying into it anyway. Ricky, can you save me from myself and my my <laughs> no, delusional no uh, conspiracies? No one can save you. <laughs> um. I can see what you're saying, that the kind of it, things seem to have lined up there so that, you know, it fits in quite nice. There's all conspiracies do tend to sort of fit in quite nice. I mean, it is actually bollocks. Oh, well. I, I, I know I'm talking I'm talking. Was that, bollocks, was that the so season where we only... We played like 40 games, Gareth. You'll know this. It, it one- was, yeah. We got knocked out of both cup competitions against lower league opposition at the first hurdle, Grimsby yeah. and Leicester, respectively. Also, the, just the other thing from the actual game Ooh. losing to West Ham was um, Teddy Sheringham, Spurs legend, hitting one of the worst penalties you've ever seen. Hit it straight at Robinson, didn't he? Which mm. would have put West Ham 2-1 up earlier on in the game. Yeah. Oh, I forgot that. So yeah. Agent Sheringham perhaps was still he a tried. working He tried to pull us, it yeah. back, but no, no, nothing was stopping the Arsenal conspiracy. I mean, maturity and age. I mean, look, of course, I'm having a bit of fun. I mean, of course, it's, you know, nobody walked in with vials of botulism. I mean, it's just one of these things that happened and it's unfortunate. My God, I, cl- I clung onto it for a decade, though. I don't mind admitting I was furious at everyone in the world of the universe. But yes, it was uh, one of those sliding doors moments. It's quite unfortunate. But yes, it's good to revisit that uh, lasagna gate. And actually, in fairness, uh, that sliding doors moment and, and for, to get a little perspective because, uh, you know, perspective is necessary to look at that, especially from my point of view. And I do, uh, I will be thinking about whether... Uh, you know, a pet managed Spurs would have led to the levels of success he's had with Man City. Not with Daniel Levy at the helm, I would argue. But there we go. Um, Gareth, save us from ourselves and bring us to the next sliding doors moment that we have chosen to talk about tonight on The Game Is About Glory. So I'm taking us back to the summer of 1995 when Unchained Melody by Robson and Jerome was top of the UK charts. And in the US, it was Waterfalls by TLC. 
any school corridor or changing rooms were full of the waft of Lynx deodorants, and only 2% of the UK population had access to the internet at this point as well. Um, but we are going to the moment when Dennis Burkamp signed for Arsenal and not for Tottenham Hotspur. And just a bit of context behind this, if I, if I take you back 12 months prior to that, Spurs were really, they were innovators by signing Jurgen Klinsmann, who was a world-class player who just, I think, won the Golden Boot at the World Cup in, in, in America that year. And it was a point when English clubs just didn't sign foreign superstars. So Schmeichel and Cantona were perhaps very, very good foreign players, but they'd made their names playing in England with Manchester United. So when Spurs bought Klinsmann, it was it was really un, you know un, unheard of. Um, Klinsmann, of course, had a fantastic year, but his departure left a very bitter taste in our chairman Alan Sugar's mouth. And he described, well, I think foreign players in general as being mercenaries, and to quote him, Carlos Kickerballs. So at a point when English football was really starting to open up its eyes to attracting foreign players, and actually foreign players were attracted to coming to play in England as opposed to Italy and France for the first time in in over a decade. Rather than us looking at who the next big foreign import would be who could revolutionise the way that we played football and the way that we thought about the game, we turned our... We, we, Alan Sugar overlooked the possibility of signing Dennis Burkamp and instead he went to play for Arsenal instead. Now, this one for me is very much it's a double-edged sword. So you look at what we missed out on by not having Burkamp. So we ended up signing Chris Armstrong, who we've discussed on previous pods, actually had a very, very good season until he got injured the year after really formed a very, very good partnership with Teddy Sheringham. But, you know, there's no way that you can talk about Chris Armstrong and and Dennis Burkamp in the same sentence. So Burkamp, for me, is probably the greatest foreign import if you look at the longevity of his career and the way that he moved a football club from where it was where he started in 1995 at Arsenal. They'd finished in mid-table that year. They'd finished, what, 13 points below us. Um, to the point where they were sadly one of the best teams in Europe, if not the, if not the world by the time he left in 2006. So we missed out on a very, very good player, but it was also, I think it marked, it was a really poignant moment in our history, in the Premier League's history. So when clubs were thinking about bringing in players from abroad and the behaviours that come with it, so it wasn't just the technical ability, it was the discipline, it was the nutrition, it was the way players looked after their bodies, it was the way that players had been looked after in Italy, who were probably 15, 20 years ahead of what was going on in England at the time. We stuck with a largely British core of players for a crucial two or three years when Arsenal and then Wenger came in. Um, Chelsea started bringing in the likes of Ruud Hullet, Gianluca Bialy, Roberto Di Matteo, Gianfranco Zola. Even Middlesbrough bought in Janino, um, Emerson, Ravinelli. And it really left us a long way behind and it probably took us 20 years to catch up with those, uh, with certainly with Arsenal and Chelsea or to get anywhere near them again. So let's just have a look at what would have happened had Dennis Burkamp signed for us in 1995. Well, let's just ignore the fact that I'm not sure that him and Teddy would have been completely compatible because ultimately they were both number 10s. But let's just say that they were both incredibly intelligent and gifted players and they would have worked out a way to play together. But I think Nick Barnby would have 
would have stayed. He said that he left the club because he was homesick. But I think if he had had the opportunity to play with Dennis Burkamp, he may well have stayed at Spurs. Um, we would have seen a team that would have been built around the expertise of Burkamp, Sheringham and Barnby and Anderson. Um, we would have revolutionised the way that things happened in the back room at Spurs. We would have ended up appointing a more progressive manager than Jerry Francis to have appeased him and to keep things ticking over. Meanwhile, Arsenal would have been stuck with Chris Kiwomia and John Hartson as their centre-forwards for another two or three years. They certainly wouldn't have won the double in 1998 and um, Spurs would have been the dominant force in North London moving into the millennium. Right, for those last two sentences, I, I say that we, we blew it. I mean, we blew it generally. I mean, Bergkamp would have been a great player at Spurs, as I doubt, but we blew it, didn't we? Yeah, right? that's it. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Is that, that fear Anyone of Carlos else? kickable. Hmm. Anyone else? Yeah. We blew it, right? Yeah, I think, um, like Gareth said, I think Sheridan would have worked it out with Burkamp easily. They're clever players, and we'd have had a um, uh, a stellar strike force with them too, and if Barmy and Anderton stayed, and maybe Dazelle could have just never played. So, right. R- R- Ricky, Ricky, we, we would have been playing with a false nine ten years before anyone else even thought exactly. of it. Exactly. The other one with Arsenal is um, Petit was very close to joining us, wasn't he? And... Um, mm. Uh, I think I think he was actually in 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 London to sign for us, and then got the call from Arsenal and went down the road. We um, paid for his cab, didn't we? Famously, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think uh, that would have been a, a really big one because mm. you know, Although, we, we, you know the kind of soft centre, the classic Spurs soft centre, would you know he would yeah. would have helped a lot with that. I think Petit said the problem was that when he spoke to Jerry Francis about joining, Jerry Francis had him down as a left back. And that's where he would have played him in a fairly regimented left back, which I think nominally, nominally he was at the time, but Finger clearly saw that there was there was more to him than that. Right, Steph, can we can we just scrap this actually and just start again and just do our sliding doors moment? Is we never appointed Jerry Francis because we've got, we've got several <laughs> others with him as well, haven't we? The Badger. Well, yeah, I mean, we did have Zinedine Zidane, of course. He was apparently turned down as an apprentice because he looked a bit wooden. Too wooden. <laughs> it was the phrase. But anyway, I'm I'm gonna yeah I'm gonna thanks for that, Gareth. I think we're in agreement with everything you said, and uh, you know we basically blew it. I'm gonna round it off. If Roman Abramovich had bought Tottenham Hotspur, it is said that in summer 2003, uh, you know that Abramovich was in talks to buy us, and Sven Goring Eriksson is always really big on saying that you know when he was consulted by Roman, as I'm sure he was when he was leaving his shoes outside his door and all that business. And, uh, you know, when he took the phone call. He said that, you know, uh, Abramovich basically supposedly said Chelsea or Spurs. And apparently Sven Goran Eriksson basically said, go Chelsea because Tottenham is shit. I mean, it's something like that. I mean, it was a little more, you know, academic coming from Sven, the way he says it, but that's essentially what he did. Abramovich and his uh, second in command at that point, Eugene Tenenbaum, did apparently meet Daniel Levy. You know, there was a book that came out that apparently uh, quotes Abramovich as saying that when he was in his Mercedes trundling down the high road, he looked out and said in Russian, this is worse than Umsk, which is the grim Siberian outpost where he himself had an oil refinery, as one does. You know, he ended up paying 60 million quid for Chelsea. I do think it's worth looking at some of the figures just before we get into the fantasy. According to the Spanish paper Marca, Abramovich has spent literally billions on transfers over the years, which of course has come out of his pocket as a personal loan to Chelsea. So you go and do the mathematics on that. I mean, he spent 200 million plus on deals in the summer of 2020 alone. Um, and, you know, one thing to note, he did poach Arneson from us and built a huge academy at that moment uh, in the in the mid, you know, 2005. So, I, you know, 
I could give you the stats. We all know what Chelsea have won. We all know bubbly bubbly bar. So I'm just going to run through what would have happened uh, if he decided to buy us instead. First of all, we would never have left White Hart Lane. I think he would have developed the ground. I think he'd developed the West Stand to accommodate more private boxes and possibly the North Stand too. And we'd have ended up with a stadium that looked a bit more like Old Trafford. We'd have kept Arneson. I think he'd have hired Didier Deschamps to replace Glenn Hoddle. I think he'd have... Uh, I'm, I'm sort of spinning that. It's the losing finalist in that year's Champions League. Of course, he picked uh, Jose Mourinho, but I'm going to go with him hiring Didier Deschamps. And so we'd have bought in Patrice Evra and Morientes. Uh, Deschamps would have asked for and got Makaleli. I think Aaron Robert would have joined. I think Deschamps would have won the FA Cup in his first season and got us in the Champions League. But some faffing around with Roman would have seen him quit. And then I think Roman would have rolled out the checkbook map for Carlo Ancelotti, who would have been our manager for a good seven seasons. I think Carlo's the sort of dude who can, like, you know, avoid the storms and he's a nice guy. And so him and Roman, it's all, you, it's all good, all great. So that's three FA Cups and Champions League coming to us before failing... Uh, having failed at the semi-final stages before. Ancelotti would have uh, had players like Modric linking up with Pirlo. And I have to say, he probably would have brought Catuso in, surprisingly enough. I think he'd have seen him as a defensive midfielder of note. I think Abramovich would have made sure we got Vincent Company as per the manager's instruction from Hamburg and he would have remained miraculously fit for his entire career and we'd have seen Fernando Torres as the Spurs centre forward at some point in that time. Seven years on, that goes hits the wall. I think we get Jupp Henkes and we immediately smash the transfer records to sign Thomas Muller. Henkes enjoys the Bale-Modric-Muller connection as the three power their way to the title once more, built off the back of a formidable defence of course. And uh, in 2015, Roman next managerial hire would have been Jurgen Klopp I think he'd been impressed by the man's hunger. I think he'd have pinched him from Borussia Dortmund. I think we'd have uh, built a title-winning Champions League side containing the likes of Mane, Wijnaldum, De Bruyne and Modric, linking up with Ali and Son, and the brilliance of Kane, all under the leadership of a still roaringly fit and superb uh, linchpin of uh, Vincent Company and his partner in defence, some younger chap called Van Dijk. Uh, we would have claimed our third Premier League title and won the 2019 Champions League final against Barcelona. And I think after, you know, two tough seasons for Klopp uh, following on, Roman would have decided that, you know, he's going to have to think about a new manager. He considers Roberto Mancini because Mancini's had such a great time with Italy and they've, you know, they look like they're going to possibly win the Euros at that point and so on. But I think he's going to look around and he's going to pick that German out of contract manager from the Dortmund Workpool again, Thomas Tuchel. And I will just add this. I think that Daniel Levy would have spent the first few years post-sale keeping quiet. Uh, he would have found the opportunity to join ITV's uh, competition to The Apprentice uh, TV show. Too much to turn down. And he ended up helming a show where young businessmen must show their deal-making metal. Um, you know, Daniel's goofy, childlike smile and the glimmer in his eye would have caught the attention of Simon Cowell, who would have recognised Levy's unique Britishness and seeming ability to make a tough decision means that he becomes the unlikely star judge on America's Got Talent, where we will see Daniel start wearing white Nehru's jeans and sockless loafers with his shiny head becoming a beacon of British hope for inspiring and aspiring singers dancers and actors all over America the likelihood of course is we probably just would have replicated what Chelsea have done boo I'm glad we weren't but that's my fantasy who wants to come in on that I can't see any manager lasting seven seasons under Abramovich other than that I think it's, it's perfect yeah do you know the, the more you said it though the more I think 
would I want to be Chelsea? Would we want to have that level of fantasy? Or do actually, do we want the disappointment of missing out on the Europa League on the final day of the season? There's, uh... 100% agree, Gareth. Uh, I think, I've said this before, I think, especially with loads of things in life, and we might as well throw Tottenham into this now, like the journey is important, I think. And I've always mm-hmm. said, um, if, if I get in a helicopter and you drop me off at the top of Everest, I haven't climbed Everest, have I? You know what I mean? Yeah. That's sorry, hang on. I have to think about that's heavy philosophy, man. You're twisting me melon, man. That's big. <laughs> that's big. <laughs> sorry, Sean. <laughs> well, I've twisted your melons with all that, haven't I? I can see. I mean, especially come on. I mean, no comments on Daniel Levy being a judge on the uh, uh, <laughs> America's Got Talent. So I'd so, so you've got him sat on a sofa with Sharon Osborne. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I thought he was media shy. Now he's turned over a new leaf, has he? But that's it, you see. That's oh, it. As we saw, as we saw, well, no, but as we saw with that uh, horrendous Amazon thing, he's media shy, but he's not shy to get himself in the media when the moment comes and he can sort of look okay. I mean, he's certainly, he's into a designer appearance, I think, you know? I don't know. Anyway, I think it's interesting uh, what everyone has, yeah, everyone's response is, you know, would we have wanted to... Mm. to be Chelsea. I mean, look, first and foremost, let me be clear, I'm delighted not to be Chelsea in any guise. I mean, if I wanted to be Chelsea, I'd have been a Chelsea supporter, and I'm not, and there's a very good reason for that. It's because I don't like them. So, <laughs> But the Chelsea you grew up with were um, West London's West Ham. They yes. they weren't, you know, they were True. a yo-yo club. They aren't what they are now. Well, but now they're just, but actually, equally, I could tell you that for me, the Chelsea that are now are the, you know, they're the first, they're the vanguard of the gauche sort of like mm. new money, like, you know, sort of yeah. like me, they spend like, you know, 10 grand on dinner and wave it in everyone's faces kind of, you know, stop, you know, young stockbroker. That's kind of the impression that they give me now. So uh, look, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very happy that, uh, that we didn't follow that path. I mean, I, and I'm, I'm glad that he didn't buy us. I mean, again, I think it's impossible to fully judge it because what's fascinating about being a football supporter, and this is something that we were talking about pre-pod uh, in a sense, you know, you follow your club almost to deafening and blinding degrees of hypocrisy mm-hmm. when the decision that they make goes against your core beliefs. And so it's all very fine for us to sit here and say, well, you know, we're glad we didn't. But I guarantee that if we had and we were doing this pod and Abramovich had been at the helm and we had been winning loads of stuff, we'd have found ways to justify it. I mean, that is the truth. Um, and I think probably have to admit Possibly. that. Possibly. Yes, um, philosophically speaking. I mean, I suppose... I suppose that depending, maybe my early 20-year-old self might think differently. Maybe I've got older and maybe that's why I kind of think differently because you develop as a different person. But I wouldn't necessarily, there'd be something missing. I wouldn't be complete, basically, especially in the um, the sure. old triangular relationship I'm always talking mm. about. I'd feel it's a, there's some hollowness there. I, I think that's true. I think also you'd be a worse person because supporting a shit team is character building. So I think... People who pick a team because they're successful, I think, are missing something. I don't think they really understand what right. it is to be a football fan. Oh. And I, oh. I, I think, I think if Spurs have become, yeah, come into billions when you were in your twenties, you, know, you wouldn't be the person you would be now. 
I think there's three types of Chelsea fans. So there's the type that you've already alluded to, who you would have grown up with during the eighties. Um, then you've got the, the then you've got the new fans that have supported them since Abramovich. Then you've got the third one, who are the only t- ones that you can tolerate, who are the ones that when you they say they support Chelsea, they immediately have to caveat it by saying, "I can remember Kerry Dixon, I can remember parking me up my car behind the corner flag at Stamford Bridge." Um, but that's well, I'll go I'll go one better on that. One of uh, one of my one of my really good friends is uh, actually in uh, in his 80s Stan, Stanley Moore and I, I call him Sir Stan actually because he's just uh, he's just an absolute legend of a human being and a diehard Chelsea supporter who had no time for Jose Mourinho I may point out and who actually will sit and tell me stories about the first game back at Stamford Bridge after the war so uh, that's one Chelsea fan whose opinion I always listen to and I always take you know I always take well and he's got a very balanced view on it I mean I think he's of you know, he understands I think that you know with Abramovich Chelsea hit the gravy train so to speak so he doesn't allow it to dictate you know necessarily his, you know he's he's no he's no fool he understands the luck involved there but um you know they do exist good chelsea fans do exist thanks lads that's been a lot of fun there's been some fun stuff there but you're not off the hook yet there's one final sliding doors moment our bid for stratford is selected over west ham's what happens next three two one go whoever's fingers on the buzzer first gets in there franchise fc oh I think everyone gets over it pretty quickly within three or four years of us moving there. Um, Purpose rebuilt stadium, as as suggested. Mm, I've still hated it. I've still hated it. Um, And if things have gone like they have at the new White Hot Lane, I mean, Levy gets enough stick despite that. So if we was at that Stratford, Mm. West Ham territory hellhole, um, uh, it would have just been an even bigger stick to bash around the head with. Yeah, Stratford plus ESL would have been awful, wouldn't it? I just think it would have been shite. I mean, mm-hmm. I just can't. I mean, I wish I could find a more intellectual word, but I can't. I could find yeah. a few lot less intellectual words, but shite is the middle ground for me. It would have been awful, and it would have signaled a major, major challenge for me in being a serious supporter. Think I might of the shopping the- centre, Steph. Think of the shopping centre cruising through <laughs> there and the wastelands outside the stadium. It would be beautiful. <laughs> I, I think that's key for me, though. So my my first game that what, I the went shopping to... Center? No, no, no. What I was going to say, say, my first game at New White Hart Lane, I got off at Seven Sisters and walked up the high road. And I don't normally go that route. I normally go via Northumberland Avenue and across. But when I first started going, it was to walk up from Seven Sisters. And with the new ground, I wanted to do that walk again because I wanted to see it as I was walking up there. And we've talked before, actually, about having, you know, having one of these chats on, on this program before about kind of, you know, before the game or around the game or how we get to the game and those kind of discussions. And, you know, I, I got, I got the butterflies as I was walking up there, you know, kind of, you know, could, could, you know, when you first saw it and, and everything else. And the first time I'd gone to Stratford, if that had happened, I wouldn't have got that. You know, I, I mean, I, I had a tour of the Olympic Stadium before, before the Olympics. I, I got a kind of behind the scenes tour. I went around the ground. I saw, you know, sort of around the stadium and all, and all the other facilities there. And it was amazing. I mean, you know, really impressive. Um, you know, what they could do on a, on, on contaminated land. Um, but I wouldn't have got the same. Still contaminated. Yeah. I wouldn't have got the same getting the, you know, getting the, the, Jubilee Line or DLR to Stratford and then kind of walking through a shopping centre and coming out the other side. I wouldn't have got those butterflies as I got walking up the high road that day. I was going to say, as a supporter, you can't underestimate it. And we, we kind of do now because it's all happened. To remain on that same footprint that the club's been on for like 100 years. And because once you've built that stadium, that's just 
it's going to be there for another hundred years and you know mm. we won't even know if it's there because we'll all be dead kind of thing but we can spend all our lives in that venue with all those rituals with all those things you know that we've done all our lives yeah. basically I, I i don't underestimate it at all as a matter of fact to me it's very much as uh, uh, as important a part of supporting this football club as anything is where it is and what it is that's the identity the, the you know the the, the as you say, the walk from Seven Sisters, mm. you know, the air you breathe. I think if that sliding doors mode had happened and we'd gone there, I think we would have become a franchise football club mm. and not Tottenham Hotspur football club. And, uh, you know, look, you we all maybe chuckle sometimes about the fact, well, you know, you just follow a name and a badge, but that just proves you don't. Because if we'd have moved there, you know, what is it, five miles, six miles mm. or maybe? Four I don't or know five how... miles, yeah. Yeah, mm. so people say, well, it's only four or five miles. Well, it might as well be four or 5,000 miles. Especially in a city like London. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the greatest things about this new stadium is the fact that he's, I mean, you look at where the centre spot is, you know, mm-hmm. they've marked it, obviously, in, in the stadium on the concourse, you know, and it's everything. That's everything. I mean, that walk up Seven Sisters Road, as you say, I've done that walk since 1980, mm. you know, um, and, and that's... and. That's the walk. I don't want any other walk. I don't want anywhere else. And so, I, you know, the one thing we'll never know is whether it was a ruse or whether it was real. I mean, I, I really don't know. Maybe you guys know more than I do. No. But I'm just glad that that sliding doors moment happened the way it did because I might not be here sitting uh, on this pod. It's possible. I can see you on a Barnet pod. You talk about it most <laughs> weeks. <laughs> <laughs> on that fine note, why don't we just leave you with the final bit? Say thank you very much, lads. That's been it's been it's been a good one. And uh, and Milo, good luck editing that, uh, <laughs> listeners. I just want you to know that what you're hearing is a largely abridged version of the conversation we've been having for over two hours now, and it could have gone on for at least two hours more. Um, uh, we will be back next week with more sensational season two Spurs pottery, and you can find us on twitter and instagram so give us a follow say hello show your friends as they can give us a follow and say hello all that good stuff that means social media spreads our name also detectives amongst us will realize that i'm reading the same blurb as last week so i'm going to stop now and say if you like the pod just listen on itunes leave us a review we really appreciate it milo's offer of sorting your life out if you leave a good review is still available to you in a very sort of alphabetical binary and common sense way as always Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week for more Tottenham Madness.